You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Uh, and thank you for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I am, as always, Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And today we're going to be talking about Russiagate a bit. I don't often get this immediate or this contemporary, but uh, this seems like a topic that's kind of fit for the show. Um, particularly, I want to focus on the left's somewhat dismissive response to the liberal obsession about Putin and his hackers. And as always on this show, I do make a distinction between the left and liberalism. So uh, bear that in mind. This might not be the dichotomy you're used to hearing about on an MSNBC. But, um, and to help me do this, though, I'm really excited to welcome Ed Simon back to the show. Ed was a semi-regular guest on the show at the beginning, and he's up to some really exciting things lately. And so I'm humbled and honored that he's taken the time to join me today. Um, and this show was, in fact, inspired by a Facebook post that Ed made last week. I messaged him about uh, coming on, and he was gracious enough to do so. So, Ed, how you doing? Thanks and welcome. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great to hear you. I uh, um, Well, tell us what you're doing. We'll get into more of the details lately. You've been publishing like all over the place. Uh, uh, some of the places that uh, we're, we're, we're some of the places that we can read you. Uh, I've been uh, sort of at least trying to write up a storm. So I've been in a lot of different places, um, places I regularly write at. There's a great British site called Berfroy. Uh, it's B-E-R-F-O-I-S dot com uh and i write for them about once a month or so but then i'm sort of at an assortment of other places uh all of the time Uh, i have like a master list that i sort of um you know keep as updated as possible and that's available at my website which is edsimon.org so i'm an organization apparently technically (laughs) um but uh edsimon.com was taken by the fantastic uh venezuelan acid jazz uh pianist uh of the same name who is not me but he does own edsimon.com but so i'm.org uh and i do have a a master list there but uh but a lot of different um places uh and i try to have i have a couple things normally every week uh, if I can, if I can manage it a little bit slower now in the summer, but we yeah. do what we can. Uh, and then, uh, the, probably the big thing worth, uh, worth kind of mentioning. Drum roll. Uh, yeah. Is my, uh, I have, a my first collection, uh, is coming out, um, from zero books, a great British radical press, left-wing press. Uh, and, uh, it's called America and other fictions. Uh, and it is a collection of both new and previously published uh, material, although in, in oftentimes in different form from how it appeared uh, originally. Uh, and that will be coming out, I believe, November 30th of this year, November 30th or December 1st. I'm not sure on the exact date, uh, but it is available for pre-order on both the British version of Amazon uh, and on the American version, I believe now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do uh, encourage everyone to buy multiple copies. <laughs> of course. Of and and we've talked a little bit. I, hopefully we'll have you on as that gets near to his publication date. This is a little uh, sort of promotional thing for it. And, and uh, we can talk more about that book more specifically when it comes out, I hope so. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd be really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. And Zero Books is, uh, you know, our friend friend of the show, Derek Varn. Uh, he sort of oh, yeah. uh, is related to Zero Books somehow, too. So there's, uh, this is all part of the family here. Um, Doug Lane. Oh, and if you're not really uh, Zero, I just as a free plug, nobody asked me to do this. Um, Zero <laughs> Books does these really great YouTube videos now uh, about uh, politics and, you know, all this really cool stuff about Jordan Peterson. And um, so the Zero Books <laughs> podcast is one of my favorites. And now they've started this YouTube channel that's wonderful too just while we're on the topic of zero books but um go ahead Ed. they've been trying to get uh jordan peterson i think in some sort of debate about marxism for yeah. uh, and he's not uh he's not taking the bait as it were yeah. i suspect he doesn't like talking to people who don't 
agree with him. Well, but, uh, yeah, and he, he he likes to talk about how Marxists won't debate him, and then he just won't return their calls, yeah, right? And so, I know. <laughs> so maybe he's like a very he's like he's like no, I meant specifically Trotsky. I didn't <laughs> yeah. name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. but, yeah, I know Doug Lane's been uh, talking about that a lot on his yeah, show. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, well, Ed, it's uh, it's great to have you here. Um, it's always great to talk oh, to you. you. It's and, good to be here. And uh, and I'm I'm obviously I'm very happy to know how to pronounce um, Burfoy. Is that what it's called? Because you're yeah, always Burfoy. publishing Burfoy. I know, yeah. I've never known exactly a, how to say it. So it's uh, what's really funny. I because when I first started writing for them, I had of course no idea what the word meant, uh, and I, I looked it up. And I think you dig this too, especially with the title uh, of uh, Sectarian Review. Uh, is that uh, a Burfoy? It's sort of this archaic Middle French word that refers to the um, um, audience sort of dais. Uh, at a, a jousting match, so sort of like <laughs> it's sort of this uh, a clever kind of thing. But um, no, I, I love writing for them, and I'll plug them too while I'm at it. <laughs> uh, uh, Russell Bennett's who's the editor there, fantastic, very supportive. They do uh, a wide variety of things, and uh, I kind of feel like they've got um, a model or a method of publishing that works really, really well. So they kind of uh, they have a lot of readers, and they. Um, they produce a lot of content. So I think they're, they have an admirable little operation over there across the sea. So. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And uh, I'm really, I'm a little proud of you. I mean, I have to say, I love to read your oh, stuff. Thank you. And, uh, and I've, like I said, it's been a while since you've been on this show. Um, or the early days, you were sort of a mainstay. And it's great to have you back. And hopefully, yeah, I have you, yeah. have you back more often here. So I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, well, before we get to the show today, talking about Russia and Russia Gate, uh, I just want to do one more brief plug, if you will. Uh, the Christian Humanist Radio Network has, you know, uh, a lot of really great shows involved with it. Uh, one of which is the book of nature. Um, and I wanted to real quickly, uh, Todd Pedler from that show had asked me to, uh, direct your attention. They're actually, they come, they're actually real scientists, so they don't publish every week like I do. Right. And so, uh, they, uh, they have a slew of new episodes coming out and I just wanted to uh, direct your attention to them. Um, uh, coming up right around the time that this comes out, um, they're going to talk about the film arrival, which I taught in my short, uh, my, uh, science fiction film class this last semester. Um, and the short story that it's based on, and then they're going to get into, they have an episode on star Trek that's coming out, uh, on the heels of that. And they will be recording a, uh, a show about volcanoes, um, apparently pretty soon here. And, uh, and Todd promises me that the opening music he has planned for that, it will be, um, fun. And so, uh, I just wanted to direct your attention to that specifically, but as always go to christianhumanist.org and find out everything that we're doing. The Christian humanist podcast, the, the flagship, they're sort of on still on hiatus until the fall. Um, the Christian feminist podcast keeps coming out with really interesting things though. And, uh, book of nature and of course, city of man, sort of, uh, uh all sister shows here. And, uh, I just wanted to, uh, uh, to give them their due. So, um, um, let's get into. I just, also, I, go ahead. Before you ask, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the uh, the hymn, "The Satan, Your Kingdom Must Come Down." Oh, <laughs> I love that. Yes, that yeah, is. I that works. It was very. <laughs> I was looking for a new song, and yeah, uh, yeah. I I fr- stumbled across this band called the Blind Revelators. I always give them a plug on YouTube, uh-huh. and uh, they're a Spanish band that does all these yeah. kind of old timey Americana covers. Yeah, yeah, and, it's uh, very Grail Marcus, yes. sort of like old weird America kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, and so they, I I messaged them and asked if I could use that for my, my oh, theme awesome. song, and they said yeah. Apparently they're not active anymore, but you could still find all their stuff if sure. you just sort of uh, go to. I, on, they have a Facebook page you can go to and and find all and band camp I assume and all that but yeah mm-hmm. Blind Revelators really really sweet people and an awesome awesome version of that great song so yeah yeah um, and it fits with the topic today I think it does uh, <laughs> it works perfectly and so before we get to your main points now you're very critical uh, on your Facebook post about uh, kind of leftish, let's say, mm. dismissals of liberal obsession with the uh, kind of Putin, as I said. So, but before we get to those main points, can we talk a little bit about the ways in which these lefties sort of do have a point? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> uh, absolutely. What are your thoughts on it? There is a point at which this uh, media obsession is a little bit unbalanced, I think. Um, and and what, are, what are your thoughts on that? I think, uh, and one of the things I guess I would have to kind of um, bracket out is uh, I tend to be a little more incendiary in the Facebook posts, as everyone is, uh, <laughs> than I do. Well, depending. I don't know. Sometimes I'm pretty incendiary in my writing, too. Uh, but uh, I definitely, in criticizing that kind of um, leftist critique of liberal uh, language regarding Russiagate, I have a, a very um, 
particular direction, I think, in which I am critical of the left or the my fellow leftists' criticism of Russiagate. Where, where I think that they do have a point uh, is I think that there is a segment of kind of social media liberals on uh, Twitter and Facebook and wherever else um, who talk about uh, this sort of conspiracy involving Russia and collusion with the Trump campaign in a, in a particular way that isn't like necessarily helpful. And I think where uh, the leftist critique of this kind of liberal obsession has a point um, is uh, as regards some of the language and some of the rhetoric that surrounds what we talk about Russiagate. So the kind of like valorization of the intelligent apparatus is like super problematic in all kinds of ways. I think that there is sometimes um, a bit of a a fantasy that's based in this kind of Sorkin-esque understanding of procedure um, where like there's a fantasy that people have and it's completely understandable. And I, I have it myself where, you know, you envision uh, Mueller, you know, storming into the white house and then like perp walking Donald Trump out of the oval office in handcuffs. Like that's a, that's a nice fantasy. Like I, I like that. I wish that would happen. But it's a fantasy for a reason in that that in particular is not going to happen anytime soon unless something radically changes uh, with how our government operates. And there's no reason to think that that's going to radically uh, that's going to happen. So yeah. I think that the leftist critique of um, this sort of uh, liberal pose towards these uh, or liberal position, I should say, towards these issues uh, is correct in that if people are relying on the idea that there's a narrative deus ex machina that's going to show up and somehow save us all from Trump and that that in and of itself separates Trump from Trumpism and from the bigger sort of mm. social and cultural issues that created and enabled him. I think that's a dangerous fantasy to have because I think it breeds a certain complacency. Uh, now, when it comes to Trumpism and sort of the bigger things it's connected to, I think that that also has something to do with Russia uh, that the left is ignoring as opposed to liberal. But that's something we can talk about a little bit later, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you make some really great points there. I think right from the beginning, even before the inauguration, people were looking forward to impeachment proceedings. Right. And so yeah, oh, absolutely. and this has sort of become the the machinery that this might happen through. Right. And so um, yeah. I think that there's been this kind of overly enthusiastic latching on to what is an extremely complicated and nuanced and um, almost like microscopic uh, issue. There's so many little elements to this giant investigation. Yeah, it, it's yeah. really hard for someone who's not involved with the investigation to even know what's happening here or the scope of it. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, I oh, think yeah, that, absolutely. I think that that's, that's one thing. And the other um, point at which you made that I totally agree with is that people like to think that we're better than Trump. Right. And so um, that Trump is some sort of anomaly. This isn't who we are, that kind of narrative. Oh, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And so they don't realize that removing Trump is not going to remove Trumpism. It's just going to give it a martyr kind of, you know, and and uh, and the idea that this thing in our society, this whatever, this element of our society that has kind of manifested and given us Donald Trump is there without him as well, right? And so it's not going to solve all of our problems just to have him removed. And so um, the, the whole Russiagate tends to Oh, I guess kind of ignore the fact that there's a larger cultural and political problem that we have in our society right now that Trump is kind of a sign of as well as a leader of. And I think that speaks to how um, sort of mainstream liberals uh, versus leftists have a different way of analyzing the world. Right. Yeah. And I think that there's a certain amount of I mean, liberals in so much as they're inheritors of kind of a mainline enlightenment view of things have a, a little bit of that kind of um, uh, great man theory of history still yeah. implicit in how they view the world. Not but that the, Trump's a great man, but, but that's Sorkin-esque you know. uh, narrative that you're yeah, talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, I, I think one thing to remember when we talk about, cause the, the sort of, this is not normal, uh, you know, hashtag, this is not normal kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm sympathetic to both that and uh, to viewing Trump as the inevitable result of kind of deep seated cultural um, you know, American cultural issues, political issues, and so on. I think that, you know, he's the result, like everything, any kind of rupture, 
the result of a, of a certain dialectic. So I think he absolutely is profoundly American in the worst possible way, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he sort of calls upon these like deep threads in American culture that have always been there and are really, really noxious. So it's not always helpful to kind of pretend as if he's this thing from the outside that was projected onto us and not our own kind of like sin made manifest or whatever he is. Yeah. Right. At the same time, there are aspects to him that are sort of precedent shattering. And I think that's important to remember too. I think sometimes I think there's a usefulness in both critical approaches and you have to be careful that you're using the right tool at the right time, but there are all sorts of aspects to his administration that like if you have to point back to like Andrew Jackson to find the equivalent kind of like precedence shattering, yeah. you're kind of missing the point about how he's different from things in the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And, you know, I'm disgusted by how a lot of liberals have suddenly found an affection for George W. Bush, who yeah. in my mind is a <laughs> is a war criminal responsible for like millions of deaths. Yeah. I also think, though, and I don't know necessarily if it's I think it's an academic argument as to whom is worse. I think that Trump has the potential to be far worse, though, if we give him a little bit more time, you know, and mm. I think that um, sometimes we can be too clever by half to be like, well, you know, here's some other really bad stuff that happened. Let's remember that. Let's not forget about that, you know, and it's sort of uh, I, that's where I get frustrated with the academic left is I think that they will wear their erudition on their sleeve a little bit too much. I totally mispronounced that word, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Um, and uh, and I think that that can have a kind of um, I, I think that can be less than helpful as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that one of the um, articles that I found in prepping for this was by Michael Kazin and uh, dissent and kind of a point that he makes in there is that we should be concerned about Trump because this is like he's aligning himself with an autocrat. Right. And having these autocratic tendencies does make the potential for someone even worse than George W. Bush, right? Uh, the, he yeah. has an autocratic streak, streak that George W. did not have, right? No. And so, yeah, um, and I think you're exactly right there. And the only other thing I would say about this, and I don't want to sort of beat a dead horse, but one weakness in liberalism right now for me is this unwillingness in some circles to uh, accept responsibility for um, losing that election still. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just blaming everything on the evil people who have bad moral um, standards. And and so, and I think that this uh, Trump uh, won because of Putin's hacking narrative yeah. re- try is a, is an, an attempt to absolve oneself from actually um, doing be- wrong thing, making bad decisions. Uh, and so I think that that is uh, another element of this where I think the left has a point. I will say with this, and this is, uh, you know, God forbid, I never want to like um, defend the DNC because I think they're one of the most incompetent <laughs> groups of people in the world, right? Like I, I will, what's the old Will Rogers joke where he says, I'm not a member of any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Like, <laughs> yes. I, I think that there's always been a lot of truth to that. And the Democrats have always been remarkably good at snatching, uh, what is it, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, right? That was a, six, uh, 2016 is a perfect example. Yeah. See what I would say about that, though, and I think the thing that's important to keep in mind, and I do think that there's always a, there's always a question of strategically what went profoundly wrong in the Clinton campaign with things. But we also have to remember, and this has to be part of that, because otherwise it's going to be an incomplete analysis, is that she did win by three million votes, sure. admittedly in the wrong places. But I think it's something like, what, like 80,000 votes across like a dozen counties in three states. Sure. So like that means her strategy, uh, you know, would have failed, assuming that there's no additional chicanery uh, beyond the normal kind of aspect of normal and, you know, swallow my tongue with this, but gerrymandering and voter suppression and so on, uh, that her message did appeal to more Americans than did Trump's message. So that always has to be kept at at the forefront of any kind of questioning of what went wrong with the strategy. The other thing I think is, is, you know, you'll see people uh, quote all the time, Chuck Schumer's uh, uh, statement where he said for every what like you know blue collar Rust Belt vote that we lose we'll pick up two suburban Republican votes in, in yeah. Philadelphia or whatever like that has not aged well no. clearly right <laughs> like that's not a good good line and I think uh, you know I am completely sympathetic and supportive of anyone who thinks that the Democratic congressional leadership um, has become ossified and out of touch and that they need to kind of clear them out I think that uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi for whatever um, 
strategic usefulness they had in the past are kind of a, a bit of an anchor around the Democrats' necks right now. Yeah. But I, I, do, I do think that too much self-flagellation about what went wrong can also be a problem because I think that it has to be remembered that most people uh, agreed with the, the Democratic Party in the 16 election. Sure. And then I think you can come out with, I mean, whatever. I think that has to factor in and that doesn't oftentimes factor in. And add to that um, the idea that maybe we should have actually campaigned in Michigan, right? Um, and so, uh, yeah, but I mean, like some of this is like a like a bit of a media myth too. I mean, there's this sort of like Hillary Clinton only talked to like you know the uh, the women's studies group at Vassar, and they're the ones who like ran her entire <laughs> campaign, and it was all like hashtag identity politics or something. But that's strictly speaking not true. I mean, she talked a lot about like issues that were pertinent to the white working class. The media didn't cover that, you know? And I mean, I don't want to keep on saying it's the media's fault, it's this person's fault, it's that person's fault, but it's a complicated issue. I think you can't just, you know, uh, I mean, absolutely, absolutely mistakes, major mistakes were made. Yeah. But I think that it was always an uphill battle in the way that the kind of like, you know, media ringmasters ran the circus to a certain extent. I mean, so I, I think the kind of, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. I agree with all of that. And obviously the way that our media sort of goes after the horse race coverage just instinctively yeah. um, because it sells papers, right? Uh, that all makes a lot of sense to me. The, uh, I mean, I just do think though that that campaign did ignore, and, and I'm just speaking from, I live in, old former coal country of Pennsylvania yeah, right yeah. now. Right. The things I'm from, that, I'm from that area. I, I know you are. I know. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I know that like heard the way I'm talking to, I have a friend who is a, uh, uh, in the mining, um, union here and, and he is just, he was furious at the way she talked about mining. Even if what she's saying is true, there are ways to talk to miners without sure. saying explicitly, we have to make these jobs go away. That's, that's poison to, uh, well, in, to an entire Democrat demographic. That's a great example, though, because the speech where she said we're going to put a lot of coal miners out of business, which yeah. is a horrible line. That was an awful line. The entire speech is about economic opportunity in the Appalachians. I, I agree. I mean, it's just I mean, like and obviously, like, you know, if you know the media is going to like cherry pick what you uh, said, then you should be really careful about what you say. You know, ninety nine point nine percent isn't good enough if you know they're going to pick up on the point zero one percent. Like, I, I agree with that. Uh, and I agree that, you know, it is unfair that, like, I think Hillary Clinton was held to a completely different standard. But obviously, you know, campaigns aren't won on what's fair. They're won on what is cagey and strategically intelligent. Mm -hmm. So I, this, this is not like, a, you know, it's that person's fault. Or it's that person's fault. Like, they should have known better. But I, I do think it has to be acknowledged that the narrative itself uh, like what people were hearing wasn't necessarily what was being said. It was as mediated through all of the things that do that mediation that people kind of um, arrived at the uh, at the understanding that they did. And I also think it's fair to say, and like, you know, I think like anyone who voted for her, I have a complicated relationship to Hillary Clinton and the idea of Hillary Clinton, that perhaps running somebody that you know, uh, whole like groups of voters had been taught to hate for 25 years was strategically not a great idea. Right. Uh, as unfair as that hatred may have been, sure. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a disconnect from kind of the reality. There's a sort of a, the, that's a world at 80,000 feet. Um, she seems the perfect candidate from 80,000 feet, but on yeah, the ground, yeah. right. There's a lot of nuance that that's just ignoring. And, um, and so, yeah, and this isn't to say that, you know, I didn't also vote for Hillary. Right. Uh, yeah. But uh, it is to me, I, the minor point that I wanted to make was that this Trump uh, Russia Trump connection for liberals has become another reason to not take account of yeah. mistakes that were made and should be corrected in the upcoming um, election. It wasn't as if um, it shouldn't have been that close is what we're saying, I guess, is, is the, yeah, is the yeah. bigger point. So um, so let's get to the, the actual subject of this uh, is your kind of um, critique of these leftist arguments. And I think they're really smart. Um, so first of all, what are you reading um, specifically that has you kind of irked uh, about some of these arguments? Like who are who are we talking about specifically? Um, there's a uh, there's a. It was actually a very well-written piece uh, in Jacobin by, I think his name's Seth Ackerman. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, don't quote me on that being his name, but I, I think that's the name. And uh, he, gave, he made a lot of the points that we're making right now about how 
uh, Russiagate allows uh, a certain subset of mainstream liberals to uh, not admit responsibility for certain things. So I, th I think that those, uh, you know, and that was a good article. I think the um, more uh, kind of um, harsh critiques from like the, the Intercept crowd or like, uh, you know, Glenn Greenwald, certainly, and we can talk about him too. Yeah. He's kind of a special case. <laughs> uh, so there's, and then just like whatever flotsam and jetsam pops up on my, you know, Twitter feed and kind of colonizes my unconsciousness. Your but, sort of uh, current affairs and all that kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Nathan Robinson piece in current affairs is a, is a great example of this, um, this sort of genre that is emerging of kind of, um, people from the left sniping at, you know, liberals who are to the, to the right of them, uh, kind of thing. And it's kind of an inverse of what we were just talking about with liberals, like looking, this is sort of the mechanism to continue, uh, a debate that, from 2016 on the leftist side. Ooh, yeah. This is a, le a, le a mechanism for liberals to, as I have been doing <laughs> or for uh, leftists to trash liberals, right. Uh, as I have just oh, been yeah. doing. Right. So this is sort of a convenient kind of, it's two sides of the same coin in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, I think, is uh, uh, kind of rerunning the 2016 Democratic primaries ad nauseum, which yeah. is like the, the most excruciating thing to do <laughs> at, this at this point. Who knew it's that just, could get yeah. old, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just like nightmarish, but... Uh, um, it's no exit. It's this, this is what Sartre yeah. would write about in No Exit today. So, um, I, mean, I, I think, and one of the things I talk about, too, in my, um, in my little Facebook screen is... Uh, I think so much, and this is true of all political argumentation, not just today, but probably forever, but I'll say today, I'll, I'll do my best Andy Rooney and complain about things today, uh, is that um, I feel like so many of these arguments kind of commit these category mistakes where they're responding to things that other people aren't actually saying. Yeah. So that these arguments are always like really in bad faith. And I've seen a lot of, I've seen this shared a lot on Twitter, where it shows some of the like kind of really hilariously amateurish Russian memes that were on facebook on social media yeah uh and it's kind of like oh so this is you know you think that this is why hillary clinton lost and i the thing that is weird to me about that is uh, obviously and you know i'm not a statistician but it would seem to me that it would be impossible to prove that russia swayed it one way or the other uh right like I, common sense would tell me that they had some sort of effect but all sorts of things had other effects right yeah i think Com comey's um uh you know thing a few days before about reopening the investigation of Hillary Clinton, I, that seems to me like that probably would have had more of an effect on the election, the final outcome, than did some like kind of, you know, weird, goofy memes uh, that drop all the articles and are obviously written by like a like a 17 year old in the Kremlin or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that seems irrelevant to the issue of collusion. If the Trump campaign knowingly and willingly worked with agents of vladimir putin's government which i think seems obvious at this point then that's important to know and that's something that whether realistically it leads to impeachment or not in a perfect world would lead to impeachment and, and the comparison i make in the facebook post is uh you know when the uh, watergate plumbers attempted their break-in in, in uh, 1972 that had obviously no effect on the fact that Nixon won. They didn't find information that helped Nixon beat McGovern in like the biggest landslide in U.S. electoral history, right? Yeah. It's not like your crime failed, so it's not a crime. That's not how that works. So I just feel that that is um, such a uh, kind of non sequitur to focus on the fact that like, well, maybe the Russians didn't have an effect. They wanted to, and Trump wanted them to as well. And they helped each other. And that's the major issue there. Um, so sorry, I don't know if that may have been a total digression. No, no, show, it's, but. it's good though. Right. Um, and you're exactly right. There's no way Nixon was ever going to lose that election. And so, and yet that is still illegal and it is still a prosecutable offense. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. and so, yeah, that, that is a, a really good point. And, and, and you go on to make that point that there, there is actual, if, if something is illegally done, even ignorance is not a defense against that. Right. And so whether it actually affected the outcome of the election or not, there are laws exactly. against colluding with foreign governments in our, exactly. in our yeah. election. Right. And so that is something that needs to be prosecuted. Um, and so, yeah, the, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, um, and so what you mentioned, Glenn Green, Greenwald, um, he keeps mm. throwing around this, charge of it's like a new McCarthyism and, and yeah, you think yeah. that's ridiculous 
I, I do. I think that that is uh, such a loaded term that is clearly meant. I think it's clearly meant to trigger a certain subset of people, of left wing people who rightly see McCarthyism uh, as an evil thing, which it absolutely was. But I think as a as a as a uh, sort of critique of what's happening right now, it's the equivalent of when Trump talks about witch hunts. I yeah. think it's such a misused uh, and abused term. So yeah. what really upsets me with Greenwald who I think wears the mantle of being leftier than thou all the time, <laughs> right? Is that, uh, let's keep in mind what McCarthyism was. McCarthyism was uh, a culture that destroyed thousands of lives in this country because of people's uh, uh, political beliefs or the assumption of what their political beliefs were. And what we're looking at right now uh, is a legal investigation that has indicted a handful of people. That's not McCarthyism. That's like, I mean, um, it's a it's a totally, totally different thing. The other thing to keep in mind is uh, the accusation of McCarthyism is to kind of uh, neutralize um, the uh, the idea that these people could be guilty at all. Right. Yeah. Like Paul, Man- Paul Manafort and Roger Stone are not guilty, are not uh, victims of a new McCarthyism. Yeah. Right. What makes it even more obscene and bizarre to me uh, is that, uh, you know, one of uh, Trump's Machiavellian tutors in power back in the 1980s was Roy Cohn, the sort of reptilian lawyer who was assistant to Joe McCarthy. (laughs) So there's like this like real, I don't know, it seems like straight out of a a, a certain type of playbook to accuse uh, those who oppose you of exactly what you yourself are guilty of. Yeah. I also think he's using McCarthyism to more generally mean Russophobic, and that's that's fine. Then use the term Russophobic, and there might be some merit. There's a little bit of a kind of like Boris and Natasha are sneaking around feel sure. to some of this language, and if that's the case, call that out. But a new McCarthyism, I think, um, I think there's an obscenity to that as an accusation. Yeah, I think that that's. Uh, well, and and I think it's done also in profoundly bad faith because Glenn Greenwald's a smart guy and he absolutely knows every point that I just made. Yeah, he's it's it's designed to kind of obscure and befuddle. To it's an it's ironically red baiting kind of in reverse, and, and so yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so yeah, and that's actually I mean, you one of the places you write frequently is History News Network, right? And so yes, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's. Un, un, uh, it's unfaithful to history, right? And so there's something that's kind of pernicious about it just on that level. We need to yeah. be careful oh, with our terminology. And so it's many different. terms are misused. I actually have an idea for a show uh, in the future about, you know, these jargons that we use that are actually debasing our ability Ooh. to have, uh, you know, rational political thought. And, and McCarthyism is a good example. I'm thinking like the... The, you know, the fad of calling everything gaslighting now. Uh, yeah. And so we're sort of losing the attachment to what that actually is supposed to mean and therefore yeah. unable, unable to talk as in as much detail as we should be able to talk about actually important things because we've debased the language by making everything mean whatever we want it to mean. And so um, just on that level, you're right, it's a bad faith argument and, uh, and has kind of some pernicious rhetorical consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that would also be a really interesting idea for a show. Yeah. <laughs> I think just to sort of second you on that. But yeah, I think that um, I think it's a meaningless accusation that serves to make uh, an emotional response as opposed to kind of a convincing argument. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so that's a, a point at which I totally agree with you. And incidentally, as we're talking here, um, I have a, a call out for comments on Facebook right before we recorded. And uh, uh, and our friend of the show, Neil Gusman, uh, he's a very big anti-Trump guy. And so he's uh, a, a former um, serviceman himself. And he has this kind of um, um, he agrees with the liberal uh take on this and so go read neil's very funny take neil is so is the, <laughs> he's a funny he guy <laughs> The Twinkie in Helsinki. The Twinkie of Helsinki. Yeah, yes, was, I like that. <laughs> yeah, Neil is Neil is a great guy, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, and so he's uh, he's got some funny stuff up there. But as we were talking, uh, Drew Vantland, who you know, Drew, uh, he actually yeah, yeah. he actually just wrote this ten item list uh, from oh the leftist perspective that is actually getting at some of this. One of the uh, things that he says it is xenophobic to constantly and discriminately refer to the the Russians as villains, as you were just yeah. kind of saying. And he's sort of using the correct term. 
here. So he's presented a nice, and I won't read them all, but if you go sure. to our Facebook page, you can see um, Drew's kind of leftist critique mm-hmm. of liberalism, and he lays it out very nicely, uh, much mm-hmm. better than Glenn Greenwald has been doing. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, let's move on here. Uh, you also think that it's kind of a, there's a, an, a tendency to say that liberals are running on Russia instead of something sub- substantive. And you think that's a bit of a straw man argument. I think one of the things to keep in mind with all of these debates that we have is they're all debates with each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> like when we talk about like everyone's talking about Russiagate, well, everyone that, you know, X, Y, and Z follow on Twitter and Facebook and whatever else, this is not something I think – I'm not saying that the wider votes, voters don't care about Russia because I think that they do to an extent, but they also don't they don't overly care about it and they don't overly care about people who overly care about it. Yeah. If that yeah. makes sense. It does. You can parse that. Out. Yeah. I just, I think that, uh, the echo chamber and the, the, the bubble whereby, you know, the 15 different flavors of liberal through left all debate amongst each other is something that bluntly most people uh, don't care about. And it mostly doesn't matter. And to that end, I don't see the Democrats running on Russia. I don't see if anyone can like show me a candidate whose major platform is we need to investigate Russia. I would be amazed. I can't name anyone. And if anything, I feel like the mainstream Democrats kind of downplay Russia, which I know sounds counterintuitive, but it only sounds counterintuitive because all of us are talking about Russia with with each other all the time. Yeah, this is all inside baseball stuff for politics junkies who are basically like sports fans. Right. Um, yeah. And I think the thing is, you know, if you think about it, if you if the Russian narrative uh, as it's being presented by a lot of people um, is true in all of its particulars, and I'm sure it's not true in all of its particulars, though I suspect that quite a bit of it is accurate, uh, then why are Schumer and Pelosi even showing up to work, right? Why aren't they outside uh, trying, you know, protesting in front of the Capitol building, trying to shut everything down? If we've been completely hacked by this foreign power, you'd think the Democrats would be running on Russia. They're they're not, right? And I just don't I don't see anyone's candidacy being driven by this. So I think it's kind of a straw man to say the Democrats need to stop focusing on something that they're actually just really not focusing on to the wider public, to their base, maybe. But yeah, I think you're largely right there. I think that the power brokers within the party realize that it's probably bad politics to run on this because it basically means we're running on impeachment and that's not really a good position. You're not going to win back those counties in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin. Right. Uh, and so um, by, by running on that. And so I think they're kind of smartly keeping out of that end of the debate, although they yeah. are fueling it in those kind of echo chamber circles like MSNBC shows. Right. So I think mm-hmm. people see MSNBC and CNN going off and on, uh, on and on, excuse me, mm-hmm. about Russia, Russia, Russia. And it's actually starting to look a little bit like Glenn Beck's old show with uh, the mm-hmm. conspiracy, th- conspiratorial whiteboards. Um, it's actually the, yeah, yeah. the connections that Rachel Maddow, Maddow well, draws. That's, that's like Mormon <laughs> eschatology, though. But yeah. Well, sure. But I mean, yeah, yeah. it's still this conspiratorial. Uh, let me sure. draw the connections about things that we nobody really understands yet. But let me draw the connections for you. So you do have this kind of wild eyed conspiratorial approach to this on those television networks that are politically affiliated. And so, Mm -hmm. but that is not the same as saying that candidates are running on Russia because you're right. Candidates are probably wisely just letting that play out. I think that's absolutely true. And and I think the thing to remember, like with, you know, MSNBC or CNN or whatever uh, is uh, they're obviously playing. I mean, they're in the money making business and the kind of like conspiratorial whiteboard thing you know makes the money and that's not to the benefit of the democrats either necessarily no i think i think one thing to remember if we're talking about uh and this is a slightly different issue from what we're talking about right now but since you know political strategy is coming up when we talk about winning back uh voters from trump it's not that i think that that's like an unadmirable thing But I also think that that strategically is where the Democrats kind of flounder in some ways, Mm -hmm. because I think the real issue is making sure that the people who are likely to vote for you do and then that they are able to vote. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of like, um, uh, you know, mystical white unicorn of the, the white working class Rust Belt voter who will like turn on Trump and come back to the Democrats. If that happened, that would be great. I don't necessarily see much evidence of it happening. Yeah. I think it's more important to make sure that the 
demographics that have consistently and loyally supported the Democrats are able to do so. Yeah. And this is something that uh, Karl Rove, of all people, pointed out in 2004. He said, politics will never be about convincing the other side again, as depressing as that is. It's all about the ground game, about getting those who support you out to the polls. Yeah. So I think that and I think in in that sense, kind of riling up the base with the Russia stuff. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a, a, a Faustian bargain to like get people all hopped up on conspiracy theories to vote. I don't mean to say that in a super cynical way, but I think playing to the base in and of itself is is not necessarily wrong. I do think that you make a really good point that, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow and others uh, have kind of um, borrowed the wild-eyed, sweaty look of like a kind of you know, tinfoil Glenn Beck conspiracy <laughs> thing. The, the problem is, is that conspiracies are a real thing sometimes. That's absolutely so true. I think we have to be careful to be like, this reminds me, this real conspiracy reminds me of that fake conspiracy. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that, uh, uh, I think that it's very important to listen to people who actually know what is going on. As regards to this. So I think when liberals, you know, when the New York Times put Louise Mensch on the uh, editorial page, that was a profound error, right? That should right. not have happened. Um, and I, I or uh, who's the other guy who does all the kind of like intelligence stuff? I think he writes for the Post or something. Mm, no. Schneider, Johnson, John Schneider. OK. Um, yeah, they're they're uh, sort of fringe conspiracy theorists. Also not of the left, I should point out. Louise Mensch was like a. Uh, Tory MP in Great Britain. <laughs> so she's not she's not a left wing person. But there was a lot of like it, it seemed like it was going to start veering into like, you know, cross out every seventh letter in, in this copy of the newspaper and like, you know, <laughs> put thumbtacks through them and let the light filter through and, you know, whatever. Like, I, uh, yeah, well, if Trump wins another term, then you're going to see liberal versions of QAnon, um, I think, <laughs> showing up on Twitter and you're going to have a very, uh, a very strange uh, conspiracy because people will just be crazy with fear and anger and loathing and so but i think one of the things to to remember is uh i think there's probably i think one of the risks of the russia investigation uh is if we uh ignore the kind of homegrown local conspiracies that allow these sorts of things to happen not not overreaching ones where everyone knows about everybody else but there's always kind of like weird electoral shenanigans with things and, and i'm the sort of person that like still to this day maintains there's probably a couple uh you know, voting uh, booths deep in a swamp in Florida from 2000, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I think the thing is um, uh, that voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, account for a lot more of this than probably uh, Russian stuff does. Sure. So ignoring that is a real mistake. So I think that um, if if liberals get exercised about uh about things that are mostly fantastic, they run the risk of ignoring the things that are kind of stealing votes literally or otherwise uh, domestically. Right? Yeah. And, and that's actually a really good point that I think Drew makes in his uh, in his post here. These systematic um, issues mm, that are yeah. affecting those that are actually much more <laughs> uh, this, this whole disenfranchisement. And also just to make a point, white working class people typically don't vote right <laughs> and so it's not yeah. it's un, a little unfair to blame the white working class for trump's yeah. election it's really the suburban white rich voters that are still voting That's republican a no matter really who's, excellent point right yeah. and so it's like to blame them and, and and the young people who the democrats are counting on to save them in the future they are yeah. not they never vote in midterms they vote at abysmal rates in midterms and they don't vote yeah. in great rates in in uh, presidential elections so you're right that is the bigger issue and and i think that this is where the left does have a point there by focusing on these. Uh, I mean, if the Russia effect even worked at all, it was barely right. These are major, massive, substantive things that you should be focusing on working and while while prosecuting things that need to be prosecuted. I, I completely agree with that. And I think, you know, um, and I think the defense of the white working class is important, too. I, I take your point with that. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean to sound overly. No, 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 no. You're right. Earlier. Because you're right. You're but not going to you're not going to change their mind. But there's not that many of them and they don't vote anyway. <laughs> well, there, there is a great article in The Baffler like a year ago. And I can't remember the name of the author, but it was uh, basically uh, fascism comes from the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And like, it's, it's true. If you actually look down at like who uh, who voted for Trump. 
um, it's it's not it's not the bottom percentile economically. It's it's white people who have a fair amount of money. Yeah. So they're kind of like uh, uh, Roseanne fantasy or whatever. Uh, not that like white working class <laughs> people didn't vote for Trump because certainly plenty of them did, and I'm not sure exactly how the percentages break down there either. But the sort of narrative that coalesced of like a like a Rust Belt equivalent of Brexit or whatever. Right. Uh, I mean that that took form like 15 minutes after trump won yeah and they we've kind of been and that's how the media works i mean we all write our hot takes and we come up with like a sort of uh interpretive model and then that if it's a popular one that seems to work they stick with it whatever the whatever the reality of it might be right yeah and and for and the brexit um, event did happen just before this election, which kind of established the narrative. It's, there's a template yeah. ready-made for it, right? And exactly. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, let's uh, start wrapping this up a little bit here. You also think, though, and I think you're exactly right here, that there's a, some of a smug liberal skepticism, or excuse me, leftist uh, skepticism about this liberal, well, about this about this whole issue about Russia. Um, and you think that that skepticism kind of defies logic. When you look at the situation, there are... <laughs> There's, there's fire. There's smoke and fire there. Yeah, yeah. To be skeptical about what I'm actually seeing is a little bit ridiculous. So I think like uh, something about that and then maybe like a wider issue that's worth talking about. I think in terms of the, the smugness there, um, I, I am completely sympathetic to left wing critiques that say, let's not valorize the uh, the national security apparatus right like yeah. i do not think the fbi or the cia are our heroes and i think it's really creepy how a lot of liberals you know comey basically handed the election to trump and the moment he defies trump he becomes a hero i yeah. mean there's something like orwellian in that like let's not forget you know if comey helps bring trump down then great but like you know his, also f that guy <laughs> like, his twitter account is know, insufferable right now it's insufferable <laughs> and it's just sort of like he had a big thing where he was you know everyone should vote for the democrats but the democrats shouldn't embrace socialism and yeah. you really do just want to be like just shut the f up yeah. i don't know if i can say that on the christian Humanist well Network, the, but, the abbreviation is fine know. keep it up <laughs> yeah 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 i will i will i, will, I used to work in college radio so i'm familiar <laughs> with some of the fcc stuff i don't know if that's pertinent here but i will um yeah, he's completely insufferable. And I think he's Comey's a Trumpian kind of guy, right? He's just he pretends to be this Reinhold Niebuhr quoting Boy Scout, but he is this sort of narcissistic, you know, uh, media hog just as much as as uh, as Trump is. Um, in terms of the smugness, though, to go back to that, sorry to answer your question with that. <laughs> the thing is, is like, I don't need to listen to like brennan or comey or whoever to see that something is not quite right, right right like i feel like there's like a weird epistemological collapse whereby i think that taking a, a a skeptical tack towards the people who led us into the iraq war or at least the people who were sort of pressured by the bush administration to lead us into the iraq war i think that makes good strategic sense to not believe everything that they say sure that that being said you have to sort of believe something for some reasons right unless you're going to like fall into a complete and utter sort of cynical relativism which is kind of arguably the case that we have right now with lots and lots of people anyhow for yeah. all kinds of reasons both their fault and not um all, all of that being said i don't have to this is such an obvious and clear case of something fishy and odd coming up that i don't have to believe everything or even anything that a lot of intelligence experts say to know that something seems not quite right with yeah. Trump's relationship to Putin, whatever it is. And that's why I call it the purloined conspiracy. It's kind of like out in the open. We can all see that this is, this is weird, right? Yeah. Uh, now I don't know what that means. I don't know that that means that like Carter page is meeting with, you know, agents in Cyprus and you know, there's, you know, P tapes or whatever else. I have no idea. Right. But something weird is going on. So being told uh, that it is foolish to pay attention to that, I think is kind of um, uh, arrogantly myopic in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, it is. It's insulting a little bit as well. Right. Uh, there is a sense in which you can that Helsinki speech in and of itself is a point at which Trump is an aberration, right? That that is something absolutely that yeah. just on the grounds of national security is an extremely dangerous moment, and, and it's it's I mean it it's something that's worth acknowledging, right? And so and I, think, I and I think yeah. if we don't acknowledge that, we're being too clever by half. I yeah. think I think it's kind of common sense. I know that Bertrand Russell said that common sense is the metaphysics of morons, but like <laughs> you know. Uh, I will cop then if that makes me a moron. I will say that common sense sort of demonstrates that like 
this seems off. This seems not to pass a certain smell test. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I'm right with you there. Um, and let me, let me, I do want to wrap up though. You kind of hinted sure. at this um, kind of newfound admiration for mm-hmm. the national security apparatus. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly Comey, I think is really obnoxious to me. I, I think I tweeted yesterday that, his Twitter feed has basically one purpose and that's to sell books to the same people who hated his guts in 2016. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think that um, it is weird to me. And I think that is a point at which the left has a, the left has been the target of FBI infiltration and, mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. of that stuff. So I think that there is a sense in which the left understands that this kind of power can be used falsely and corruptly. Right. And so sure. I, I do think that's worth, um, dwelling on as this kind of enthusiasm for surveillance in the CIA now. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and do you want to say just a little bit more about that? I, yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the point is very well taken, um, that the, the kind of, uh, liberal idolization of, uh, idolatrization of, uh, the security state is deeply, deeply problematic and historically tone deaf in and of itself, right? Like, you know, the FBI of J. Edgar Hoover is hardly, you know, some sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, they wrote utopia letters. of justice we should, like, look back on. I mean, these are people that, like, um, you know, tried to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. That's exactly who, what I was uh, going to say, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, it's not, it's, it's, that in and of itself is deeply weird. I think it speaks to um, a uh, desperation that is understandable about the current situation that we're in. I think it's the wrong uh, analysis to take. I think it's not a, uh, a mature way. I think that automatically discounting everything that they say is also not necessarily a, a mature way to, to look at things. I no. think you have to kind of, and look, I'm not, I'm not an intelligence expert, so I, I you know, I don't know how I'm going to necessarily be able to evaluate uh, the evidence and the stuff that I see, but I am assuming that the material in like the Mueller indictments, for example, uh, is substantiated in some way. I don't think that Mueller is just like making it up. Right. So, um, you know, it would be the job of someone else, I think, to show me that that stuff is, uh, is completely illegitimate. I suspect that it has a lot of merit to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that the weird celebrate, I know that after Comey spoke before, uh, Congress, what last summer, I guess. So like a year ago, you know, there were like one liners that he had that like people who hated him half a year before were like repeating on Twitter. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that that is uh, is not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just uh, want to say that the whole well, I forget the guy's name who had the he was being grilled in front of Congress a couple of weeks ago because oh, um, he had that text Tra- message. Trazic? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That guy. Like, I, I fully do believe that someone in the FBI they're going to have personal political opinions and they're going to yeah. privately express those things and they can still do their job um, and do their job un, in an unbiased way. Right. I, I totally yeah. believe that guy. I don't think he was orchestrating anything um, there. Right. And so I, yeah. I, I do think there is a sense in which the FBI, like any other organization is there for good reasons. Sometimes the, the maintenance of the organization overwhelms the reasons for which it's there. And, and, sure. and through, you know, decades of bureaucratic ossification and whatnot. And so I, I do think that while the FBI is capable of doing bad things, um, that's only because of the amount of power it wields, right? Uh, it's yeah, not because yeah. they're necessarily evil, <laughs> you know, uh, as individual people, it's just sort yeah, of, sure. a, oh, it's an sure. institutional sort of power that gets wielded there. Um, yeah. But that said, that, is still worthy of being a little suspicious of and a little cautious about and and liberals should definitely keep that in mind. I think (laughs) Um, so. um, I do go ahead. Ed. Oh, sorry. I'm just, I don't know how much time we have left. Uh, We Uh, have like five minutes, 10 minutes. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, Because I I do think one thing I want to bring up um, about the, the Russia stuff that I talked a little bit about in uh, um, my Facebook post is I, I do think where everyone kind of, uh, makes a mistake is in not understanding the sort of interconnection. This is a deep structural issue. The interconnections between this kind of growing uh, ethno-nationalist right, right? Basically mm-hmm. the neo-fascists that are emerging. Sure. Uh, and the ways in which Vladimir Putin both operates as a symbol for a lot of those people uh, and how the Kremlin also uh, consciously kind of supports those groups throughout, you know, not just the United States, but Great Britain, uh, France, Germany, Italy, uh, and so on, right? And I think that 
both liberals and leftists kind of misapprehend this as a threat. I think liberals with their reliance on the kind of like Sorkin-esque, what would that be like the, the is that Whig history or is that, I can never remember, but the kind of Sorkin-esque <laughs> like a uh, great man thing. Yeah. You think that, you know, if Trump's gone, then everything's better. Well, this is a lot deeper and wider spread and international, right? This is a lot bigger than just, um, you know, a failed former game show host who happened to bumble into the White House. Uh, I think uh, so. That's where liberals get it wrong. I think sometimes people on the left are unaware or don't take seriously enough this kind of uh, this kind of threat. And this isn't like, um, you know, conspiracy theories. You don't need conspiracy theories. You don't have to have like Putin in the bowels of the Kremlin, uh, you know, pushing buttons to acknowledge that you have a social, cultural and political phenomenon that is coming out of all sorts of things, out of sort of the the reaction um, to uh, 9-11, the reaction to the financial crash, mm-hmm. uh, and that you have this kind of uh, very noxious neo-fascism that's emerging. And a lot of these people in the United States, they really like Putin. I mean, they sort of uh, I think the latest poll said that a majority of Republicans registered Republicans now, which is a shrinking demographic. And that's important to keep in mind as well. But uh, a majority of them said that if Putin colluded with Trump, they don't really care. Yeah, I think that that's the issue more than what actually happened. Right? Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah, and, and I think I think one of the things to remember, and this has been explored by um you know, Timothy Snyder, who's a, a, a interesting historian, I know some people think he's kind of gone a little full conspiracy with his popular writing. But I mean, he, this is a man who knows more about 20th century totalitarianism than, uh, you know, he'll forget more about it than I'll ever know. He's that, <laughs> that sort of guy. And uh, he makes a clear point that Putinism is kind of an emerging 21st century ideology that is uh, uh, sort of anti-progress, anti-liberal and, and very very dangerous uh and there are people in russia if you know just to sort of like uh you know cast any uh critique of this as being like a particularly russophobic uh, claim people like gary kasparov uh, or masha gessen who's in the united states now but is of course is an important gay rights advocate uh in putin's russia uh they identify putinism whatever role it may have materially provided the trump campaign which is of secondary importance to the bigger issue that this is a uh, very powerful uh, growing kind of ideology. And it's not about like, you know, Moscow supremacy or anything. It doesn't matter uh, in that sense. But we're talking about AFD in Germany. We're talking about uh, Marie Le Pen. We're talking about Matteo Savini in Italy. We're talking about Nigel Farage's people uh, in terms of Brexit in Great Britain. We're talking about Donald Trump. Uh, and this is kind of a, a 21st century postmodern version of fascism. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we cannot forget that that is uh, what we're up against and that the other stuff is kind of details. Yeah. And I think everyone needs to remember, remember that. I think we're kind of missing the force for the trees, whether we're uh, liberals or leftists. Well, Ed, that was a beautiful way to wrap up the show. I have to nope. say, I couldn't have scripted I it better myself. Uh, it, did it on purpose. <laughs> well, it really makes me mad. I write my intros out now, and I can't do that as eloquently as you off the cuff uh, just stated that as, as, a, as a conclusion today. Um, I, I will say that's a perfect topic for the show, too, because, I mean, it's a sectarian review. The kind of the main idea is to review our own sectarianisms, right? And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think this topic is one that allows us to do that in this particular field here um, and really well. And I think we all have uh, a lot of thinking to do after this. I think you're, uh, you've summed it up very well there. Um, oh, thank you. Ed, I'll put the links to your website and, uh, and to as much of your stuff as I can on, uh, on our show sure. notes. If you go to our Facebook page, I'll uh, uh, go to the Like the Sectarian Review Facebook, Facebook page. Take part in that conversation. As we're talking, Drew and, and uh, Neil are going at each other. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think that should be a fun one to follow throughout the day. <laughs> I, might, I might enter in later <laughs> on. I'll wait. I'll kick the hornet's nest once it's calmed down <laughs> yes. like 48 hours yeah please do that yeah. um and, and so go to the facebook page lots of cool conversations like that ha- happen before and after the show um also uh if you subscribe on itunes i would really love that uh if you leave us a review i'll read it online uh itunes is for better or worse the place that people find most of their podcasts and the more action that happens on the itunes page uh the more people find this show um we don't do this for any money we just do it for the conversation so the bigger the conversation the better for me um, and if you go to sectarian sectarian review podcast.com uh, that's where you find links to our show notes I do a little blog every now and then I'll pull up with something
there. Um, but on the show notes, I will have for this episode, I will have links to a lot of the things we've talked about. I tried to jot them down, some Jacobin and Baffler articles, as well as stuff that you've written, Ed. Um, and uh, if anybody has any uh, comments to make, please do. You're more than welcome to uh, to shout back at us here uh, at any forum. Um, we do have a Twitter page. I'm extremely bad at keeping that going. I have no idea how to do a Twitter page for the show. If you have ideas, I'll be glad to hear those. But uh, Facebook and uh, and the 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 website is the best place to uh, to get back at us. And we do have an email address as well that you can find on the website. I won't bore you with those details. Um, Ed, I hope to have you back real soon. Um, Absolutely, yeah. At the the very least, we'll have you back in uh, in November to talk about your great book that's coming out. You sent me I uh, would love that. <laughs> a little uh, draft of it, and uh, I'm really looking forward uh, to talking to you about what you're doing there. And, sure, uh, sure. And uh, in the meantime, if you have any other ideas you'd like to talk about, or if I if I think of you, I'll call give you a call and maybe have you back before then. So. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love that. Thank you. No problem. Ed, Simon, uh, thank you so much for uh, all of your insight and all of your uh, uh, knowledge here and, and for your willingness to share it with us. Those of you listening, thanks for listening. Um, be sure to be in touch with us. I am Danny Anderson for Ed Simon, thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Mm-hmm.